Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Keep your Bibles open to 1 Samuel 13. We're going to be looking at that story this morning. Well, what is your greatest fear? Today, I want to share a fear I hold. I hate these things, magpies. It's a mild fear, but during springtime, especially if I'm walking in a new area, I get a little bit nervous for I don't know if I'm about to approach a swooping zone. See, a couple of years ago, I used to ride my bike to work, which would take about 20 minutes. And one morning in early spring, I got swooped twice in two different sections of my ride. And ever since, I get a little bit fidgety around these birds. I even um, tried to do that thing where you put those cable ties on your helmet and you look like an absolute idiot. And it didn't work. They still swooped me. It didn't prevent the, the, them from swooping me, so I just cut them all off. And even recently, even recently, was walking to work down Letitia Street, and I got swooped. It wasn't a magpie, but it's enough for me not to walk on a particular side of Letitia Street anymore. Now, the truth is, we all face fears, right? It kind of feels like more than ever before, we live in a world that makes us feel fear. We fear that our oceans are rising, our environment is decaying, and the effects of global warming are irreversible. We fear that inflation is growing, that our wages aren't keeping up with the cost of living, and so our dollar is worth less. We fear people's judgment on us, right? That we can't be ourselves around others. We fear change in a world that's ever-changing, that everything that we once know is now a bit odd and disorientating. We fear failure, that all our hard work may come to nothing and that we don't measure up to where we would like to be. These are only a few fears that we can face and there's probably many, many more. And they all feel threatening because they can take us out of our comfort zone into trials and hardship. So how do we not give in to our fears? That's today's question. Well, in 1 Samuel, we'll be learning from someone who did give in to their fear and it had a huge consequence on them. As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, there's been this tension in the book of 1 Samuel as we've been tackling it. Israel have wanted a king like all the other nations, but God's prophet Samuel told the people that they don't need a king. They already have a king. Who is their king? Yahweh is their king. But despite this, God gave them their request and allowed them to have a king. That king is Saul. Saul is a little bit like this guy. He's a little bit like Fabio. I don't know if this reference ages well. He was an actor in the 90s. He used to do TV commercials and be in soap operas. And apparently he's handsome. But he's also not the sharpest knife in the kitchen, if you know what I mean. And that's a little bit like Saul, right? Even though he lacks a certain king-like quality, he's very attractive. And we're told that God has raised this man up for a specific task. And we get given that task in 1 Samuel 9, verse 16. God says, For I shall save my people from the hands of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their their cry has come to me. And chapter 13 is the beginning of Saul taking on this task. As you can see, there's a bit of an outline of my talk. It'll flash up and flash off the screen, but that just gives you an idea of where we're heading today. 
Our first point is setting the scene. Everything is going to plan. And as we have a look there at verse 1, it's a couple of years into the kingship of Saul when he begins to enact this plan to defeat the Philistines. In verse 2, Saul creates an army of 3,000 men and they form two different battalions. 2,000 were to stay with Saul in Mishmash and the hill country of Bethel. 1,000 were with Jonathan, Saul's son, at Gibbeth of Benjamin. And in verse 3, we get the first attack. Across from the valley where Saul's troops were situated was a garrison of the Philistines. And we see that Jonathan's battalion undertake this guerrilla-like attack that sacks that stronghold. We aren't given instructions whether Jonathan did this on his own accord or it was ordered from Saul, but we see that Saul does kind of own the victory. You see that there in verse 4. Saul blew the trumpet to inform the whole nation that the Philistine garrison had been defeated and that all the men needed to mobilise to Gilgal. Our Saul doesn't seem like a Fabio anymore, does he? He actually appears to be leading like a king. A man who has a plan, and in faith, he's enacting it under the power of God. But a problem occurs. Israel have become, they have provoked a giant. What happens is that when we read on, a problem does arise. We hear that the Philistines, they hate the Israelites. In verse 4, we have this. Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. So... As a reaction, the Philistines assemble a huge army, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horses. And we don't get the number of different foot soldiers, but we're told that the Philistines were like sands on the seashore, which gives you the impression that the number is just so big that the writer was unable to compute it. He was unable to number them. Now, um, it's been a couple of years since this movie has come out. There's a still from it, but can anyone guess what movie that's from? Well done, Alex. Lord of the Rings. And it reminded me, this um, battle sign reminded me of what is happening in 1 Samuel 13. In the Two Towers, um, we know that Saruman's forces have marched across Middle Earth and they're going to take on the forces of Ronan in the Battle of Helm's Deep. Now, Helm's Deep is this fortress for Ronan. But as this army of marches closer to Helm's Deep and you see this sea of ugly orcs that is just so big, you begin to fear that the good guys, Ronan, they're not going to come away with a win. And on that day, Ronan's forces, they chose to fight. But in our story back in chapter 13, the response by the Israelites is to hide. For we are told that these men, they hide in caves, in holes, in rocks, in tombs, in citizens. Even some of them retreat to other lands. But Saul, what does he do? He stays in Gilgal. Because to stay in Gilgal was all part of the plan. For we are told by the prophet Samuel back in chapter 10 that he was going to come down to Samuel to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. He says, seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So in verse 8, Saul continues to stick with the plan. He waited seven days. But there on the seventh day, there was no sign of Samuel. 
And so with the situation being precarious and his army slowly scattering and time being of the essence, Saul felt like he needed, something needed to be done. He sacrificed the burnt offering and the peace offering. And as soon as he had finished doing this sacrifice, guess who appears? Samuel. And it didn't take Samuel to put the pieces together to figure out what had happened. The smoke and the blood from the sacrifice would have been evidence of what Saul had done. And the first thing that Samuel says is, what have you done? Now, here's the question. Do you think Saul did anything wrong? And the way that you answer that question, I think, will be dictated by how you view punctuality. Put up your hand if you like people being on time and you like being on time. So in your minds, I'm sure you all think Saul has done nothing wrong. But that is not the take that Samuel gives, right? And I think it's okay to feel sympathy to Saul. I hear you on that. But one of the details I do find intriguing about this situation is this need to wait seven days. Like seven days when you feel like your country is about to be invaded by Philistine, that's a long time. That's a long time. That's a whole week. And my question is, like, what was Samuel doing for six days that was so important that he couldn't come earlier? Like he's an Israelite. He knows where the script is leading. What like what what have on those six days? Anyway, the the story continues, and um, Saul gives his reasons in verse ten why he like hastily sacrificed did this sacrifice. You know, he said like you know like my my army it was scattering, and and Samuel you didn't come on time, and the Philistines they had mustered at, at Mishmash, and and I was concerned that we hadn't sought the Lord's favor, and so. And really, Saul just felt like his hands were tied, that he needed to do this sacrifice. But this was all part of God's plan as a test for Saul. For when you have lots of time and you're faced with a problem, then I tend to like let the problem mole in my mind. I try to dissect it. I try to think it through, look at it from every angle to come up with a solution. But the problem for Saul is that he had all this thinking day time. He had seven days, but he was unable to do anything for those seven days to alleviate his fear. It would have built up on him. He would have felt more anxious the day of the seventh day when Samuel had not appeared. See, the test is assigned so that Saul wouldn't give in to his fears, but that he would wait in dependence upon God. Samuel responds by saying, you acted foolishly. His mistake is that he didn't keep the commands of the Lord, his God. And the consequence was significant. Saul's kingdom wouldn't continue. There would be no dynasty for Saul and his descendants. See, the Lord had moved on from Saul and will now go after a man after his own heart. Now, if you're in Saul's shoes, do you think you could do better? I think we should feel a great, deep sense of sympathy for Saul. See, he was placed in a very difficult trial that required him not to give in to his fears, and he failed. 
But as we've established earlier, to give into our fears is just part of being human, right? And so if it's just part of being human, then what really is the problem? Why was the consequence for Saul so dire? The problem is that when we give into our fears, then we give up on God's promises that he's spoken to us. We, can, we believe we can do things without God, and that hurts him. Now, uh, one of my favourite television shows is the US version of The Office. If you don't know the premise of the show, it's about a small paper company that's situated in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and it's managed by this incompetent boss named Michael Scott, played by Steve Carell. And in this, in the office, there's a number of different peculiar, odd characters. And one of them is this man. His name is Dwight Schrute. Now, Dwight is a man who likes rules and he likes procedures. And he, and he, and he also happens to be the file marshal of the office, a role that he was born to do. And one morning in the office, Dwight runs a fire drill but with an actual fire that he created. The week before, he says that he did a PowerPoint presentation, but no one listened. And he says, oh, that was my fault. PowerPoint is boring. No one learns from PowerPoint. They learn from real-life situations. Anyway, the scene unfolds. And the office goes crazy, people running from door to door, bumping into each other, trying to leave the building, and smoke is slowly billowing, from underneath doorways, and it's absolute manic. Anyway, later in the episode, when everything um, kind of dies down, Dwight is dragged into HR, where he's asked, did you shout fire and cause a panic in the office? And Dwight says, yes, I shouted many things. I also shouted instructions on how to get out of the building. So you can imagine my frustration as safety officer when no one heeded my advice. I think this is how God would feel towards us. See, God in his goodness has given us instructions and promises, but we fail to heed his word. And when we give in to our fears rather than trusting his word, that hurts him. So what hope is there for people like us who give in to their fears? Well, we need to look to someone who didn't give in to his fears. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 to 10, the writer speaks about Jesus in this way. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obeyed him and was designated by God, to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's a lot there in that passage, but the writer records a time when Jesus faced the greatest trial in his life. That trial involved the weight of sin being upon his shoulders, experiencing the wrath of God. It's interesting to note what Jesus does and what Jesus doesn't do. So he doesn't act out and separate himself from the love of the Father. He doesn't slip into his fears, but he comes to God with his prayers and submissions, supplications, knowing that he, was the, that he was the only one who could save him from death. 
And what we see is that Jesus' father heard him and saved him from death by raising him. And throughout this whole ordeal, Jesus was, as you can see, was obedient and perfect. He was faithful and trusted his father and the promises they had made together. See, he is our example to look to, for he didn't give in to his fears, but instead he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. See, that's good news, right? For when we do give in to our fears and ignore God's word, we have Jesus, for he is our great high priest. He is someone who exists between us and God, who takes our fearfulness and gives us his fearlessness. See, it's a great assurance and comfort to have a great high priest like Jesus. That when we give in to our fear, we have someone whom we can trust. So the consequences that happen to Saul won't happen to us as well. But as people, I assume we don't always want to be riddled with fear, right? We want to move forward and be people who can be content, whatever the situation we find ourselves in. So how do we not give in to our fears? Well, here's my advice. We need to be people who need to exchange our fears with another fear. Well, in chapter 12, we saw last week that Israel asked Samuel for repentance, that he may intercede for them. And at this stage, Israel was aware that they had done evil by asking for a king that isn't Yahweh. So Samuel reassures them. He says, the Lord will not forsake you. That's okay. He won't quit on his covenant. But he says this as his parting instructions to them. But only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. See, the problem with Israel and the problem with Saul was that they misplaced their faith. They didn't recognize that they should fear God rather than their circumstances. And as people, we don't like the idea that we should fear God, right? And there is an aspect of our faith that we shouldn't need to fear God. As Alex alluded to, that 1 John 4 passage, perfect love drives out fear. See, the reason why we no longer need to fear God is because there's no punishment for our sin. For God presents himself to us in Jesus as like a lamb. You know, he's gentle and lowly to us. He's full of love and forgiveness. But that isn't who God is fully. For God is also like a lion. Hear these words from Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedar. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oak and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The problem with only seeing God as a lamb rather than a lion is that it gives us permission to be casual with this great God. But when we see God for who he truly is, as both a lion and a lamb, we will give him the reverence he deserves. We will give him the worship he deserves. We will give him the glory he deserves. It will involve seeking him through his word and hearing his voice and praying to him. And ultimately what that will mean is that we will not fall prey to our fears anymore. 
for there is a greater fear that is governing us. Now, what does that look like in our everyday lives? Well, it can vary. But let's take an example um, that I'm sure that we all fear, that we all face, and that, that is what do other people think of us? Or um, how do people um, think about when we um, tell jokes and stories, what is their reaction to um, the way that we speak about ourselves? Now, this could easily be a problem because you can easily be more concerned and impressed with what others think of you rather than God. And to constantly seek validation from others is to be in bondage. But to fear God is to see other people for who they are. They're just breath. As Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now, that's just an example that we've been toying with now. Um, and uh, we know that we all are people who face um, fear from people's judgment. But there isn't a lack of examples that we could spend our time thinking through, as each is different and varied, but time prevents us from speaking about them. But as a church, we need to keep on speaking about the things that we fear, because tonight is to fall prey to those fears. It's to fall out of line with who we truly could be. I think it's to be in slavery to that thing rather than being free to fear God. Now today we started our service by asking, what do you fear? Maybe you need to come and renew your fear in God rather than to give in to that fear, the fears of the world. For we know there is great joy in being someone who fears our God and worships him accordingly. I'm going to pray for us now. Please join with me as I pray. Father, we do thank you so much that you do come to us as both a lion and a lamb, that you are full of love and forgiveness towards us. But God, we know that we have a tendency to be weak. We have a tendency to be casual towards you, that we don't revere you as you, as you ought. Help us to know that the beginning of wisdom is to fear you. Help us to fear you and give you our whole being. That when we are faced in times in this world, when the fears of this world arise in us, Lord, that we will not give in to them, for you are more precious to us than those fears. We pray that in your name. Amen.